You're tuned into the Chug LLP's podcast. We are a full-service legal, immigration, and tax firm with a global outlook. We partner with businesses to deliver innovative, customized solutions to their most pressing challenges. Join us as we tackle some pertinent issues. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Sasha Preston-Suni. Employment-based green cards or immigrant visas are an exciting visa category because they allow employers to hire foreign workers on a permanent basis. Employees with green cards can live and work in the U.S. indefinitely without needing any separate documentation to work, like an employment authorization document. Two of the most common employment-based green card categories are EB-2 and EB-3. These green cards also carry a complicated sponsorship process, including the PERM labor certification. Today, I'm excited to welcome our guests, attorney Jacqueline Valle and executive manager Carmen Lopez onto the show. They are going to cover some of your most pressing questions related to the sponsorship process for EB2 and EB3 green cards. So let's get started. Hello, everyone. My name is Jacqueline Valle. I'm an immigration attorney and I'm also a team lead here at Chug. I work out of our Cerritos, California office, and I'm very happy to be here. So thank you for having me. Thank you, everyone. Hi, my name is Carmen Lopez, and I'm the executive manager and team lead at Chug LLP in the Cerritos office. I am also very happy to participate in this presentation and hope some of the information that you'll receive will be helpful to you. Wonderful. Thank you. Well, it's so great to have you both on the show. This conversation is for informational purposes only, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. So let's get started. Jacqueline, could you provide a brief overview of the green card sponsorship process for EB2 and EB3 green cards? Sure, Sasha. Thank you. Yeah, so EB2 and EB3 green cards are the second and third preference categories for employment-based green cards. The process is done when there is a U.S. employer who wants to sponsor either an employee or an individual for permanent employment, which will eventually allow them to get a green card. This is a sponsorship for prospective or future employment. So the individual does not need to be currently working for the company. The position for future employment will begin once the individual obtains the green card through this process. There are different requirements or qualifications that are required for EB2 or NEB3. For EB2, the job offer must require an advanced degree. So this would either be a master's degree, a U.S. master's degree, or a foreign equivalent of a master's degree, or it could be a four-year U.S. bachelor's degree, or its foreign equivalent, plus five years of postgraduate progressive work experience. For EB3, there are different categories. There are for professional workers, skilled workers, or unskilled workers. Professional workers, the EB3 category for professional workers requires the individual to have at least a U.S. bachelor's degree or its foreign equivalent. For skilled workers, they may have more than two years of experience or a combination of experience and education to fulfill the requirements of the job offer. For unskilled workers, it's normally there's not education requirement for that type of position. It's more usually like maybe physical labor, for example, like construction workers. But you do need to prove that they have the ability to perform that unskilled work, which is usually done through some type of work experience. For this process, there 
is required to be a U.S. job offer for permanent employment from a U.S. employer. And you must go through the labor certification process, which we'll be talking about today. There is an exception. It's called the national interest exception for certain EB2 individuals that have an advanced degree or if they have exceptional ability. And if you can show that their endeavor has substantial merit and national importance and that it would be beneficial to waive the job offer and labor certification requirements, then in those cases, you wouldn't need to do the labor process. But for the purposes of what we'll be talking about today, we're going to be focusing on EB2 and EB3 green cards that do require the labor certification. Wonderful. Thank you, Jacqueline. So I'm also wondering, what are some things to consider before you begin the PERM labor certification process? Carmen? Thank you, Sasha. So basically, there are certain requirements that should be uh, taken into consideration in advance before starting the process. The most important is asking yourself as an employer if there's been any layoffs in the occupation or similar occupation in the same area of intended employment for which the position is being offered. You do have to see if any layoffs have happened within the last 180 days before filing the PERM application. If there has been, then you have to make sure that you contact those U.S. workers that were laid off within that period of time and offer the job. If they are not interested, then you can proceed to file the PERM. So that is probably the foremost important question you should ask yourself as an employer before you start the process. But even after you already consider that and there's no layoffs, then you have to consider lots of things like, is there any wage requirements that as an employer you are not willing to pay? Maybe there's a wage, maximum wage that you want to pay. That is something you should consider because you have to pay the wage from the time the permit is filed all the way until the green card is approved. And so there's also requirements of where the person will work. It matters where the person will work. So for example, a lot of consulting companies, they place individuals at client sites. And often these projects change from time to time. It could be within a month, three months, three years. But in those kinds of cases, you have to run the advertisements from the location of the employer. And so you have to consider those sorts of things in terms of where ads will be placed and wages based on the location. You also want to consider any kind of restrictions on wages because, you know, as Jackie will explain later in the process, you do have to pay prevailing wage and sometimes employers don't have their finances where you have to show certain net income or net current assets to pay that person once the green card is approved, at least once it's approved. So you have to consider those things too. You know, is a person already earning the wage now? Are they already employed on an H-1? Or if they're not employed, maybe it's for future employment and they're working somewhere else. Will you have the ability to pay it through your tax returns and net income or net current assets? So, you know, there's, there's different things to consider. Timing as well, too. You know, how long will it take to obtain a residency? You know, Jackie will talk about that. We'll talk about that a little more later on. But definitely a conversation has to happen with your lawyer and attorney to decide what's the best way to file it and if there's any pros and cons along the way. Thank you, Carmen. That was really helpful. So I know the PERM process is complex. Jacqueline, could you provide a brief overview of the process and what it entails? Yes, of course. There are various steps that need to be done for the labor certification process. You must first begin by filing a prevailing wage application. So this application is filed with the Department of Labor 
and you have to include the details of the job offer. So it'll include the job title, the job description, the proposed occupation code that you're suggesting, the work location, if there are any travel requirements. And then it also has to include the educational and experience requirements and if there are any special skills or certifications that are required as well. So all of this information of what the job offers is put into this prevailing wage application. And then it's usually, right now it's been pending about six to eight months or so. Once you get a prevailing wage determination from the Department of Labor, that will let you know what is the minimum salary or wage that an individual must be paid for this particular job. And at that point, the employer will have to determine whether they will be willing or able to to pay that salary. The next part, uh, once the prevailing wage determination is received, is to do recruitment of U.S. qualified workers. This requires the U.S. employer to test the labor market and determine if there are any U.S. workers that are qualified for the job that you are offering. There are certain advertisements that need to be placed and, you know, for a certain amount of time, which we will discuss in depth later. But in general, this part of the process takes about 60 days or so. Lastly, if there are no qualified U.S. job applicants, the last step once a recruitment period is done is to file the labor certification, which is the ETA 9089. This is also filed with the Department of Labor, and it includes, again, all of the details of the job offer, the occupation code, job description, education and experience requirements, any other special requirements. It will also include the details of the recruitment that was done. And this is where you will introduce the particular individual that you are sponsored, that the employer is sponsoring, and what their educational and experience qualifications are. So once the Department of Labor receives this application and determines that there was a test of the labor market, there was a prevailing wage determination, and the individual meets the qualifications of the job offer, the Department of Labor will issue the labor certification, which right now is taking about six to seven months to receive. Wonderful. Thank you for that overview. So that kind of leads into our next question here, Carmen. How long does it take for a perm to be approved? So basically, as Jackie said, it does take about six to seven months right now. According to the June 30th, 22 table, they they periodically update the dates on the website of uh, the Department of Labor, where they mention the dates that they're taking. Right now, according to the table, they're they're processing cases that were filed on December 2021. But typically, you know, they could process cases from November. They could already be processing cases from January 2022. So it just really depends on the officer. But it does take generally between five, six to seven months right now. And those dates do fluctuate. They can get better. They can get worse. But we've been clocking those times and it's about six to seven months right now. Great. Thank you for that. So my next question is for Jacqueline. Could you provide an overview of the requirements for recruitment under PERM? Yes, of course. So I'm going to be talking about recruitment for EB2 and EB3 professional workers. So there are certain postings or advertisements that are mandatory. One of them is a 10-day notice of filing posting. So this must be posted at the employer's principal place of business in a conspicuous location. So it must be a clearly visible location 
such as a kitchen or employee break room. And it must be posted for 10 consecutive business days. So this does not include weekends or holidays. The notice must have the details of the job offer and it must contain a attestation from the employer that they have posted this, this notice to notify its employees that planning to file a labor certification or in the process of doing a labor certification process. And another mandatory requirement is that the employer must post job order in the state workforce agency of the state where the work will be performed. This must be posted for 30 days. Another mandatory requirement is that the employer must post two Sunday advertisements in a newspaper of high circulation in the geographic area where the work will be performed. Uh, So those are the mandatory requirements for EB2 and EB3 professionals. The employer must also do three additional recruitment steps. And the Department of Labor provides a list of other additional advertisements that can be done. For example, uh, the employer can post a job ad on their website, company website, They can post an ad on a job search website. They can do an employee referral program posting. So they can post a notice asking other employees to refer individuals that may be qualified and give an incentive for that. They may post an ad in a local or ethnic newspaper or do a radio television ad, things like that. So they must do at least three other additional recruitment steps. It's important to note that advertisements don't have to have an in-depth explanation of the job description or or things like that, especially for the Sunday ads. You don't want to post a whole long paragraph because it's expensive, but there are key details that the job advertisements do need to have. They need to have the employer name, the work location where the work will be performed or the geographic area. It needs to notify the employee or the applicant of how to apply for the job and include a brief job description that can appraise the individual of what the job is, what they will be doing, and then include any special out-of-the-ordinary requirements for the job. Once the ads have been posted, you have to wait at least 30 days after the last day that the last ad ran, and then the ads cannot be more than 180 days old. So that's when you'll be able to file the perm, And if the employer does get any qualified U.S. job applicants, they are required to keep track of the resumes and interview any individuals that are qualified or may be qualified. The employer does not have to hire these individuals, but if they do get qualified individuals that apply for the job, they will have to wait 180 days and they will have to retest the labor market. So they'll have to repost all the job advertisements again before they can file the labor certification. Thank you for that overview, Jacqueline. So Carmen, which types of advertisements are required for non-professional workers? How do the advertisements differ for professional workers? Thank you, Sasha. As Jackie said, when you're dealing with uh, jobs that are professional, Jacqueline has gone over those. It's the 10-day posting, the job order, the two Sundays and the three additional forms of media. But when it comes to a job that is not a professional position, meaning skilled or unskilled, those jobs only require the 30-day job order, 
the two Sundays gaining major paper circulation and the 10 day posting. So you basically take away the three additional forms of media. So types of jobs would be skilled, for example, bookkeepers, mechanical technicians, jobs that don't require a bachelor's degree. Anything other, you know, that's a job zone three, in every job is sort of given a job zone. They are only required to do two minus the three additional forms of media. Other than that, they do the same media. Great. Thank you for that, Carmen. So I know a lot of employers might be wondering, what recruitment documentation should employers maintain and for how long? So they do, are, they are required to maintain proof of all of the job advertisements that were done, and they must keep these documents for a period of five years from the date of filing the perm. And they obviously will need this documentation during the time that they're processing and filing the perm. For the Sunday, you know, advertisements, they should keep copies of the newspapers or electronic tear sheets of the ads, Sunday ads that were posted or any other type of newspaper ads that were posted for things like company website or job search website. They should keep printouts of the first and last day that those were posted. So the printout should have a date stamp of the first and last day. You can also do this for the job order with the state workforce agency, print the first day and last day that was posted. And then for things like an employee referral program or the 10-day notice of filing, the employer should keep a document where they, you know, attest to the dates that those things were posted and it should be signed by the U.S. company signatory. And it's important that employers really do keep copies of all of this documentation because they could possibly receive a PERM audit at some point. Thank you. So what salary must an employer pay an AB2 or AB3 worker, Carmen? The employer has to pay at least prevailing wage. Uh, and again, this wage does not have to be paid until the actual applicant receives his or her permanent resident status. Sometimes there are employees that are, you know, most employees are working already on, for example, H-1Bs or other types of visas. They may be working and, and getting paid those wages according to the HRL visas or other types of visas. But once they obtain the residency, that is when they must pay the, at least the wage that was on the prevailing wage. And the prevailing wage, of course, as Jackie mentioned, is determined at the very beginning when the prevailing wage is um, determined. And interesting, you know, is that Sometimes for certain nationals, it does take years to obtain, you know, your resident status and uh, the wage is locked in from the time of the prevailing wage is determined. So, it, you know, again, you pay at least prevailing wage or above. There are various levels that are given to these prevailing wages. As Jackie mentioned earlier, there's uh, the requirements that are mentioned on the prevailing wage, ETA 9141, and they're triggered by different things. Like, for example, you could get a one point added of wage if you add travel requirements or if you add certain special requirements such as certifications or special requirements of skills and technologies that are typically not normal for the position. So you keep in mind that, you know, this is, again, an overview from the beginning. You have to sort of consider, again, if there's a wage that you want to uh, restrict it to pay or, you know, nothing more than a certain amount of wage because these are all points that are added on the wage if, if it's above and beyond the minimum requirement. Great. Thank you, Carmen. So my next question for you is, why do PERMs get audited? Yes. So 
most cases like in audits, and I would say that out of 100% of cases, um, we experience here that we probably receive about a 25% audit rate of all our cases and we file hundreds of thousands of cases. There is really no, most of them are just random selections. They randomly select you just to verify that the information that you provided on the perm, it was in fact there, for example, that there was any qualified applicants, what were the reasons they were disqualified, they'll ask for things like phone records, emails, certified letters sent to the applicants for applying. There are certain reasons that, that you could trigger an audit and we have to try to stay away from those when we speak to the employer because sometimes employers will say something like, hey, well, I, this is a software engineer and um, I want to say a master's with 10 years experience. And so that's very excessive. Every job that you file has what's called a standard occupational code and it comes with a minimal requirement. So when you're asking for something excessive above and beyond what is hard for that job, that job likely will get an audit. And if the employer is okay with that, waiting a few more months for the audit to come through once it's issued, then we can go ahead and mention master's in 10 years. But if not, you know, things like excessive requirements, language requirements, things like that can trigger an audit. That makes sense. Thank you for that. That was really helpful, Carmen. So Jacqueline, my next question is, what are the next steps in the green card sponsorship process for EB2 and EB3 green cards after the PERM process is complete? Sure. So once the employer receives the certified Firm, uh, they have 180 days within which they must file a Form I-140 with USCIS. So the Form I-140 is notifying USCIS now of the permanent job offer. This application will also contain the details of the job. So there will be an employer support letter that contains the job title, job description, education experience, and any other special requirements. You have to include the certified PERM application, which will be signed by the employee and the U.S. company. And during this step, you have to prove that the individual does meet the qualifications for the job. So you have to include copies of their degrees, uh, transcripts, experience letters, certifications, And then also you have to prove that the employer does have the ability to pay the the prevailing wage that was determined by the Department of Labor. So the employer can do this by submitting their tax returns, any audited financial statements uh, that show that the either current income or net current assets meet the, the prevailing wage or are above the prevailing wage amount. And as Carmen previously mentioned, you can also prove ability to pay by submitting W-2s if the individual is currently employed by the petitioner and they are already earning that that wage or more. So this is submitted with USCIS. There is the option for premium processing, which could get the employer an approval within 15 business days. Once the I-140 is approved, the employee will eventually be able to apply for a green card once their priority date is current. And that will vary depending on the nationality of the employee. In some instances, if the priority date is current at the time the employer is filing the I-140, then they can file an I-45 concurrently if the employee is currently in the U.S. Or sometimes the employer may wish to file the I-140 and make sure that it gets approved first. In other instances, if the priority date is not current, the employee will not be able to apply for a green card 
until the priority date is current. If they are in the U.S., they will be able to file an I-485 as long as they have been maintaining lawful status. And if they're not in the U.S., they would have to do the consular processing um, and request the immigrant visa abroad. Great. Thank you for that. That was super helpful, Jacqueline. We have a question. Is it mandatory to maintain the ability to pay even when the companies maintain their tax returns? Whichever one of you would like to take that. So ability to pay um, has to be met either to the W-2 that employees earned. Um, so for example, the priority date is 2022. You file a perm this year and you're about to file the I-140 next year in 2023. You would submit the, ta- the W-2 for the previous year. If the whole amount for the green card wage, for example, if it's $100,000 has been met through the W-2, then tax returns do not have to be submitted. But if the W-2 does not cover the entire wage, the employer must submit either audited financial statements, tax return, or annual report that has a net income or net current assets to meet the difference that the wage was not earned on. So, for example, if they made $60,000, but the green card wage is $100,000, and the PERM was filed in 2022, Whenever you file the I-140, you must submit the tax return. In companies that employ 100 or more, you can provide a letter from the CFO that demonstrates and explains why they feel that the ability to pay can be met and that can be submitted instead of the tax return. Great. Thank you, Carmen. Thank you so much for joining us. To stay up to date, please subscribe to and like our YouTube, LinkedIn, and Facebook pages. If you have any questions or suggestions for future sessions, please feel free to write us an email at infotube.com. Until next time, please stay safe. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our work, please visit our websites at www.chook.com for legal and immigration and www.chook.net for tax. Be sure to subscribe to get regular business insights from the Chook LLP team. 